0: Okay, we're doing now Tuesday's portion of Mishpatim. Mishpatim are civil laws. And we are now talking towards the end of the discussion of four types of damages. So in this damage here that we're discussing, that it begins, we're in chapter 22, verse 4. So I'm at the damage of an animal that either tramples someone else's field or eats, grazes in someone else's field. So the verse says, when a man will lead an animal to a field or a vineyard, whether he set loose his animal or graze in another's field, the best of his field and the best of his vineyard shall he pay. So here, as Rashi explains, we're talking here, there's a number of words in Hebrew that all actually have the same root, which means animal. So here, the person is allowing his animal to go through someone else's field or vineyard and either the is trampling it the animals consuming it. And he is penalized that whatever the assessment is for the damages done, he has to give from the best, highest quality land he has. Because whenever there's damages and there's an assessment, you have to pay with the highest quality of land. So that is the third type of damage called the damage of an animal trampling or consuming. And now we're going to speak of the fourth type of damage. Because... In this Torah portion, in Mishpatim, which deals with civil laws, we discuss, this, we discuss four types of damages, which are actually the foundation of the whole tractate in the Talmud, the Zikian damages. We discuss at length these damages. When a fire will go forth and find thorns, and a stack of grain or a standing crop or a field will be consumed, the one who kindled the fire shall surely pay. So here we're talking about a fire, and it can go forth, I meaning even on its own, you didn't it to burn in someone else's property but it finds consumables it's looking up the thorns and then it reaches the grain or perhaps it's the cut grain perhaps it's the grain that's still in the ground growing perhaps it's a field that's plowed and hasn't been the plant comes from it since the fire burnt it well now the owner has to replow that whole field So the person who set the fire has to pay. Now, even though he lit the fire inside his own property and he had no intention that the fire should spread and cause damage, it found thorns and because of the thorns it spread. But he's obligated to pay since he set the fire. He has to take care of it to make sure it's not going to damage. So even though it wasn't his intent, he is responsible for the damages. So that is the final verse of which we had the bulk yesterday and Monday's portion and these last two concepts today of the four root Torah portions, Torah verses on damages, from which, as I'm saying, there's many, many pages in the Talmud, much, much discussion in the Talmud on these four root damages. Now we're going to go on to the next topic, which is people that are watching or with someone else's property when that property is stolen or damaged or lost or destroyed. And here the Torah is going to enumerate four types of categories of people. Someone who is doing you a favor and he's watching it for you, someone who's being paid to watch it for you, someone who borrowed it from you, and someone who's renting it from you. And depending on what category you fall in would be your accountability. So verse 6. A man will give money or vessels to a fellow to guard, to safeguard, and is stolen from the house of the man. If the thief be found, he shall pay two, meaning he shall pay doubly. So she explains that when it says if it's stolen, the guardian is claiming it was stolen. So there a person is guarding something, the guardian says it's stolen, the thief is found, the thief pays double to the original owner. Next verse. If the thief will not be found, then the householders will approach the judges with the claim that he has not laid his hand upon his fellow's property. So the guardian is claiming it was stolen, and the owner is suspicious. Maybe you took it yourself. So if there's no thief, obviously if there was a thief found, we we know the guardian was saying the truth. But if the thief isn't found, then the guardian, who's the household that we're talking about here, has to come to the judges. He has to come with the person who owns the property, And he has to swear that he didn't touch his property. For any sinful word, for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a garment, for any lost item about which he shall say that it is this, to the judges shall come both their claims. Whomever the court finds guilty shall pay double to his friend. So we have here the guardian. The guardian is claiming it was stolen. He has to swear before the judges that it was truly stolen. If afterwards, we realize he's lying, then he has to pay double to the original owner. How do we realize he was lying? Because the witnesses testified that he, this guardian, stole it himself. So we see from here a rule, that if someone is guarding something for you for free, he is doing you this favor, and he says it was stolen from him, but actually he stole it, he has to pay double, after he swore that the article was stolen for him, and then the witness would come and testify that he stole it, and then he pays double. Now, the fact that he's saying this is this means that he is, to a certain degree, acknowledging that part of it he owes the person, meaning. If the guardian says, I have nothing to do with this, it is completely stolen, then the court doesn't force him to take an oath. Because taking an oath is a very, very serious thing, and we have many stories there, or know of cases, where people that are completely innocent refuse to take an oath, and they said, I'd rather pay for that which I don't have, and that which was truly stolen, than take an oath. It's very serious. So the court isn't going to force anyone to take an oath, only if he partially admits and says, well, you know, you gave me $100, and I do have 20 that I owe you, and 80 was stolen from me, then the court forces him to take the oath. After he takes the oath, the witnesses come. Now, the witnesses have to be cross-examined. If they're cross-examined and their testimony holds, then the guardian pays double to the owner. If they're cross-examined and it sees that they, the witnesses, are lying, And the witnesses have to pay this amount, the double, to the guardian because they try to frame him. So that was the first situation. Now this first person has the least accountability because he's just doing you a favor and watching it. He's not gaining anything from it. So if it was stolen from him, and truly was stolen from him, he's completely off the hook. The second category is someone who's being paid to watch it. So since he's being paid, he has more responsibility toward it. Verse 9, when a mammal gives to his fellow a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any animal to safeguard, and it died, or it was injured, or it was seized, but there's no eyewitness. So here we're talking about this paid watchman. So being that it was a paid watchman, he's not exempted it was stolen, because he's paid to guard it. He should he have made sure it didn't get stolen. And that's why it's written here very clearly, that only situations for which he has no control over, either it suddenly dies on you, like it's an animal, it died on you. Well, we can't blame you for that. Or it was injured in a way that you're not guilty, that was not your fault at all. Or it was seized, meaning it was seized forcibly by bandits, that you were there and you tried to prevent it and you couldn't. In these situations, you would not be liable if, of course, what you're saying is true but there's no witnesses to what will There shall be an oath of God between the two of them that he did not lay his hand upon the property of his fellow, and the owner shall accept it, and he shall not pay. So if this guardian, this paid guardian, swears that what he's saying is true, he didn't use it for himself, because if he had used it for himself, and then the accident occurred, he would be responsible for the damages from the accident, but he didn't use it for himself at all. So then the original owner has to accept the oath, And the guardian does not owe anything. Again, only in the situations where it was truly not his fault, where he had not used it for himself at all, because if he did, then any subsequent accident would be his problem. And where it was very forcibly taken from him or suddenly died or got injured in a way that wasn't his fault. If it was through his negligence or if it was stolen in a way that he could have prevented it, then even though it was honestly stolen, he was under and stolen. But since he could have prevented it and he didn't, he is still responsible. As the verse says, it will be stolen from him, he shall pay to its owner. If it will be torn to death, he shall bring testimony. He shall not pay for the torn animal. So if it was stolen, and you could have prevention, in other words, not talking about bandits that are holding you at gunpoint or a knife to your throat. If it was stolen, you should have put better locks on your property to make sure it wasn't stolen. You're responsible. But if it's torn to death, he should bring testimony, but what's the testimony? The testimony means that it was torn to death through circumstances beyond his control. Meaning, it says he should not pay for the torn animal. Not for a torn animal, but the torn animal. So some torn animals you pay for and some you don't. If it was torn up by a cat, by a fox, well, those you'd pay because you should be able to protect your animal from a cat or a fox. But if it was by a wolf or a lion or a bear or no, we're not assuming you can stop those animals and then you'll be exempt. In other words, why are we viewing this? Because just as previously when it said if it died or was injured or was captured, it meant in situations where the guardian is unable to save the animal, So also here torn apart by animals that you can't protect it from. Now, the next situation, the next verse is talking about someone who borrows it. So a borrower obviously has the most liability because you're borrowing it for your own benefit. The owner is getting no benefit. In the first two situations, you're a guardian. You're a guardian for free, complete benefit to the owner. You're a guardian, but you were paid. Both have benefit. Here, you're borrowing it. The owner has no benefit. You have all the benefits. You have the most liability. When a man will borrow from his fellow and will become injured or will die, but its owner is not with him, he shall surely pay. So if you're borrowing, you're also liable for damages that occur through accidents. The previous two guardians, the paid and unpaid guardians, are not liable for damages that are accidents. But you, the borrower, are, unless the owner of, let's take it here, the ox, is was busy with the borrower's work. In that situation, the borrower is not liable, as the next verse continues and explains. If its owner is with him, he shall not pay. If it is hired, it came in return for its rental. So if the owner is with him, if it's hired, it's talking about another type of, the fourth category, but if the owner is with him means that the owner of the animal is hired or his services are borrowed along with the borrowed animal, then the borrower is not responsible for damages to the animal due to accident. And the exemption applies if the lender was doing work for the borrower at the time of the loan. Even if he's not working with him at the time of the the injury, still this gives a certain permission for the borrower not to be obligated. The second half of the verse talks about the fourth category, someone who is renting it. So here, the animal, you are not being asked by the owner to watch it. You are not borrowing it. You're renting it. So you get benefit, you're using it, and the owner gets benefit, you're paying him. So the question then is, what is his accountability? And our sages disagree on this. Some say definitely he's not liable for accidents, that's for sure. So the only one liable for accidents is the borrower where the owner of the animal is not with the borrower at the time, as we just discussed. But what is the accountability of someone who's renting it? So some sages say he's like the unpaid guardian. And some sages say he's like the paid guardian. And with that, we've finished from the Torah's discussion on guardians and borrowers and renters. Again, in the Talmud, this is discussed at length. And now we have our next topic. Now, at this point, we have several small topics. So verse 15, when a man shall seduce a virgin who is not married and lie with her, she shall establish the marriage price for her as his wife. So if we have the situation where a man is seducing this girl and she's not married, so what he has to do is he persuaded her to have relationships with him. Now he has to marry her. And he has to give her money according to the custom of a man to his wife. He has to write her ksuba and marry her. If her father refuses to give her to him, he shall lay out silver according to the marriage price of the maiden. But let's say her father says, no way, I would never want her to marry you, even though, of course, you defiled her and you destroyed her name and her reputation. But I still don't want her married to marry you. Well, then at this point you have a fine to pay, which is fifty pieces of silver, which is what the Torah said about someone who forcibly lies with a girl. Now, we have the man did not do this forcibly; he persuaded her, he seduced her. So, therefore, the Torah is saying the first option is well, maybe two should get married. But if that's not considered, then you have to pay this fine. Next topic: You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Now, Rashi clarifies that as to males and females, they have to be put to death by the court, but it says a sorceress, meaning a woman, because it's more common that women engage in sorcery. Next topic, anyone who lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Of course, we unfortunately know in our generation how this has happened and has impacted all of us. But this is actually a biblical prohibition, which means there is a temptation for it. God's saying No. And this is saying they're put to death by stoning, Rashi explains, because a man who lies with an animal has the same punishment as a woman who lies with an animal. And about a woman who lies with an animal, it says a certain phrase, the mayhem bum, they forfeited their lives, their blood is on them, which traditionally we know means stoning, which is considered the worst of all the four capital punishments, capital death sentences, the worst, the harshest, is stoning. And that is what someone receives for... Having relationships with an animal. Next, one who slaughters to the gods shall be destroyed only to God alone. Now, to the gods means you're to idols. know what means to idols. So Rashi is focusing on the vowels here, on the nikud, because the vocalization here is la elokim, the la, the comet sound. Means the known gods. So if it wasn't who slaughters to God, we wouldn't know which gods we're talking about. So it would have to say to other gods. But here the verse doesn't say other gods because the La Elohim, the La means to the known gods, meaning the gods that we speak of in other places that you were warned not to serve. So this La is making it a definite article. We know it's those known idolatrous gods. And if you're slaughtering to them, you shall be killed. You can only slaughter to God. Now, the verse doesn't say to be killed, actually. It says, literally says, you shall be destroyed. It means the person's going to die. The idolatrous person is put to death. But it says, you shall be destroyed. So why does it say destroyed? So, it's basically saying it in this fashion to actually clarify for us for which idolatrous worship is so unpunishable by death. So here the verse says, one who slaughters to the God. Now, slaughtering is one of the four services that was done in the temple for God. How did the Jews serve God in the temple? They slaughtered. They offered sacrifices on fire. They poured libations. They had incense burning. Right? Those were the four, they bowed. Those were the four services to God. So the fact that we're saying slaughter to this idol means if you serve an idol in any of the four ways we serve God, even if it's not the way the idol is worshipped, this is an idol that they serve by throwing stones at it, believe it or not. Or this is an idol that you cut your hair and burn the hair in front of the idol. Or this is an idol that you release excrement on the idol. This idol isn't meant, you're not supposed to take an animal and slaughter it and burn it in front of it. But since that's how we serve God, if you do that for this idol, you're put to death. So for any type of idolatry, if you serve in the way you're supposed to serve God, such as slaughtering and answering upon the fire, pouring libation, incense offering, bowing, the prostration, this is how we serve God, and you do this for any idol, you're put to death. The other reason you'd be put to death for idolatry is if you serve the idol in the way it is normally worshipped. Meaning, if you kiss an idol, that you serve it by kissing. If you embrace an idol that you serve by embracing, you're put to death. But if you embrace an idol whose service is to throw stones at it, you're not put to death. If you kiss an idol whose service is to burn your hair to it or to burn your child to it, you're not put to death. So the only two categories of being put to death are serving an idol, how you're supposed to serve God in the temple, or serving the idol the way it is, normatively served and we learn this lot out from this verse that specifically one who slaughters to the god to be destroyed as verse is saying one who serves idols is put to death of course if someone served an idol in a way that's not the idol's manner of service such as he threw stones at an idol that you're supposed to bow to or he burnt hair to an idol you're supposed to throw stones at or slaughter your children to or burn something to then you're not put to death but this is, of course, a prohibition. Next topic. You shall not abuse a stranger, and you shall not oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So the abuse here means verbal abuse. You shall not oppress him means robbing his property. Why? Because if you abuse him, he could abuse you. You are also strangers. You're not supposed to accuse your friend of a flaw that you have. Stranger here, of course, means someone who's... Coming from a different country and is not a native to this land. You shall not persecute any widows or orphans. Now, we're not going to persecute anyone, but we say specifically don't persecute widows or orphans because it's most common to persecute them because they're weak, they're vulnerable. It's common. If you will persecute him, or if he will cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. So if you will persecute him, doesn't say what's going to happen. It's like a threat where it doesn't explicitly say the punishment, which of course sometimes is how the scripture writes. It's a threat. If you persecute him, you're going to get it. You're going to get in trouble because he's going to cry out to me. Now, if you persecute this child who's an orphan and he doesn't cry out to you, God will still punish you. But if he cries out to you, the punishment will come even faster. My anger shall burn and I will kill you by the sword and your wives will be widows and your children orphans. Well, If you're killed because you persecuted this orphan or this widow, obviously your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans. We understand how God is exacting punishment measure for measure. Why does the verse have to say that? So Rashi explains that what the verse means is there'll be living widows and living orphans because nobody will be able to ascertain your death. And therefore your wife will be stuck. She'll be a widow forever. She won't be able to remarry. And your children will be stuck. They'll be penniless because since we can't ascertain your death, they won't be able to have your property. Maybe you're captive, maybe you're alive, and they can't touch it. Next topic. When you will lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, do not act toward him as a creditor. Do not place interest upon him. So the verse says, if, literally it says im, if you will lend money. But this means, this is one of the times Rabbi Jemal, who generally translates im as if, in three situations he says it means when, and this is one of them. Others are more generous than many times. They translate im as when. But Rabbi Shmuel only does it three times, and this is one of them. It's not if you'll lend money, when. You're going to lend money. It says you lend money to my people. From here we learn the laws. That if you have a choice between lending money to a Jew or a non-Jew, you have to lend to the Jew. It takes priority. If it's between a poor person and a rich person, the poor person takes priority. If a person is the poor person of your city or another city, the poor person of your city takes priority. Our sages say, poor of Jerusalem are like considered the poor of our own city. So that's what it means. When you lend money, answer to the side between a Jew and a non Jew, to my people, the Jew comes first. To which of my people? As the verse continues, to the poor person. To which person? As the verse continues, the one who's with you, meaning the one of your city. So don't be a creditor, meaning don't claim against him forcibly. You lent him the money, but you know he can't repay. So don't act toward him as if you lent him the money and he owes you act as if you didn't lend him the money, don't embarrass him. And you cannot put interest, there's of course a very strong biblical prohibition that we're going to let charge another due interest. The word for interest here is neshech, which has the, it's etymologically the word to bite. Like neshichas nachash, the bite of a snake. Because a snake bites a small wound in your foot you don't feel it, and suddenly it puffs and swells up your whole body. And that's what interest does. Just think of credit card debt. You don't feel it. You're not aware of it, and suddenly the interest is accumulating, 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 and causes you a tremendous lack, loss of money. But we can see, and of course we can continue with the other verses, even though I'm saying these are, so to speak, separate laws on different topics, but of course they all have the same commonality and theme of kindness, of compassion, of treating all of God's people more kindly than the law would seemingly demand, and that is what the law is demanding. If you will take your fellow's garment as security, until the sun sets, you, sh- you shall have returned it to him. So here's again. This security, this collateral, doesn't mean at the time of the loan. We can't take collateral because the time of the loan. But when the debt is due, and he can't pay you, you're allowed to take collateral. But you have to give it back to him every day when he needs it. So here, if you're taking a night collateral, like if you're taking a, a, a garment he sleeps in, you have to make sure he has it all day and at night. Every night you could come and get it back from him. You can't even go to yourself. You have to send a messenger of the court to come and to give it to him and get it from him. So you're really making yourself crazy here, and you have to do this every single day. The person could feel like, what's going on? I'm being punished here. This person owes me money. He didn't pay back. Now I'm taking the collateral. I'm being punished every day. I have to go and get this from him. This is crazy. So God says, look how much you owe me. Every night your soul sends to me. Every night there's an accounting. Every night your soul's in debt. And every morning I return it to you. And I do this every single day. So you too take the collateral and return it. Take it and return it. Even if you have to do it every single day. As God is behaving, so are you behaving. The commandments are, in a sense, not for my uh, self centered benefit. This is the will of God. God wants you to behave as He's behaving. And yes, it's a pain. And yes you 're not benefiting and do it every single day and again, depending on what type of garment it is it's that 's when he returns it so if it 's a garment that he only needs by day, the whole day he gets it, and by sunset, you can have it when he doesn 't need it. If it was a garment that he needs by day, he needs it, he gets it the whole day, and by night when he doesn 't need it, you can have it. Bert alone is his covering is a garment of his skin in what will he lie down? So it will be that if he cries out to me, I shall listen to him, for I am compassionate. So Rashi says, it's his covering, it's his cloak, it's his garment, it's his shirt. What's he going to lie down in? It's his bed linen. So if he needs it, when he needs it, he gets it. Does this help me? This is God's will. And that's why I'm doing the commandments. And through all of these commandments, obviously, We're being trained to be, just by following the laws, incredibly compassionate people.